I invite you to join with me in a word of prayer. Lord God, I'm grateful for Easter morning and the empty tomb because Jesus, it means that you are alive and you hear our prayers. So I ask you now to open our minds and hearts to understand this truth. I pray as the preacher that you would help me as well. And I pray it all in your mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to thank you for coming out this morning to celebrate the Lord's resurrection on Easter. I'm sure there are many motives that bring you here this morning, but I know that it honors God when his house is full and people are here worshiping him, so thank you. Now, if you've been tracking it all with us as a church through Lent, we've been preaching through the Lord's Prayer, and I lined the sermon series up in such a way that each of the phrases would take a week, and we would land this Sunday on the doxology. That's the part of the Lord's Prayer that says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's actually not original to the text. It was added on after the New Testament was written. All the, all the early and best Greek manuscripts don't have it in there. But that's not to say that it's unbiblical or that it's not in the scriptures. It actually is taken from a number of places, but one of the strongest ones is from First Chronicles, where King David has collected up the free will offerings of the people to set aside resources to build the temple, which his son Solomon would do, And then he prays this whopper of a prayer, and he says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. I suspect that somewhere in the first century or two of Christianity, people just felt like stopping the Lord's prayer with the word evil didn't feel right, and so they added this doxology on the end as a way to conclude it. I might submit to you that Jesus didn't want us to conclude our prayer and so left it hanging, deliver us from evil, and leaves us in a state of continual prayer. But I digress. That's not the point this morning. King David worshiped God for all three things, that it was God's kingdom and God's power and God's glory. And I wonder about you, can you say the same, that you acknowledge that God is the one who has those things, to the fullest at least, Sure, people can have them as well, but ultimately they are God's. It is God's kingdom, it is God's power, and God's glory. My focus today is about control. We have a human problem where we want to be in control of things. We want to decide outcomes. We wish that we had more power than we actually do. And I want to ask, who is in control of your life? That's the question and focus. Who is in control? And I noted as we went through Holy Week, reading through the Passion narrative once again, how steadfast and calm Jesus was. He was a non-anxious presence as he was being falsely accused and condemned, as he stood before the religious leaders, as he stood before the Roman leaders. Sure, he was anxious as he prayed in the garden and really wrestled with what the Father was asking him to do, but he was resolute that he was going to do the Father's will. And once he got past that moment, He was calm. He was in control, or at least he was trusting his father with outcomes. He had promised what was going to happen. I will be handed over. I will be falsely accused. I'll be condemned. I will will suffer, and I will be crucified, and on the third day, I will rise. He called his shot the whole way. This was not plan B. This was always the plan from the very beginning. His father was in control. And as you read through the Gospels, you see that other people have agendas. They have their own agendas that they're trying to control. I mean, consider some of them. Judas, 
Judas had an agenda. He wanted money, and he betrayed Jesus to get it. Caiaphas had an agenda. He wanted to hang on to religious fame, power, whatever it might be. And so he ignored all the miracles and all the wonders and the healings and everything that Jesus had done, including raising Lazarus from the dead. They ignored all of that and condemned him out of jealousy because of the crowds that were following him. Or consider Peter. He had an agenda. You know, Jesus was in the garden, and when they came to arrest him, Jesus had resolved to go peacefully because he was laying his life down. He says, no one takes this from me. I lay it down willingly. But Peter took up a sword and struck the servant that was there. And Jesus actually picks his ear back up and puts it on him and heals him and says, put away the sword. Peter had an agenda to take the kingdom by force, and that wasn't what Jesus was going to do. And of course, Pilate, who we're going to look at this morning, had an agenda as well. Now, I think it's interesting when the Apostle Peter preaches at Pentecost in that very first sermon after the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in the upper room, he says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Did you catch that part? Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The Father planned this out of love for us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This was the plan for all ages. And God was in control. God is always in control. You know, one of my favorite movies that I watch from time to time that didn't get a lot of popularity, it's from the early 2000s, is called Stranger Than Fiction. And it's a movie with Will Ferrell, but he's not funny in it. He plays a serious person. And Emma Thompson is an author who's kind of reclusive, and she's trying to write a novel in the series of novels she writes. And her main character always dies. And what's strange about it, Stranger Than Fiction, is Will Ferrell's character, Harold Crick, can hear the narrator's voice in his life. And it's driving him crazy because he can hear this English woman's voice in his head narrating his actions and sometimes even his motives before he realized what they were. And this drives him to a psychologist, but she can't help him other than give him medicine. And so he says, well, if you were hearing this, what might you do? And he said, she says, well, I don't know. I'd, I guess I'd go to talk to somebody who studies English literature. So he goes to a junior college, and Dustin Hoffman plays a professor of English literature. And he doesn't want to help him until he hears that Harold Crick has heard this phrase in his head. And it says, little did he know that this seemingly innocuous event would lead to his imminent death. When he hears the narrator say that, he panics, and he goes to Dustin Hoffman's character and says, you got to help me. And what he says is, Harold, you've got to figure out Who's moving the plot forward? Is it you or the narrator? So here's what I say. Stay in your apartment tomorrow. Don't go to work. Don't change the channel on the TV. Don't answer the phone. Don't do anything. He literally doesn't even go to the bathroom, has a bottle there. He's sitting in his apartment. The phone's ringing. He won't touch it. He won't. The TV is like some boring nature show, and he's like, nope, don't. And then all of a sudden, a huge wrecking machine with these claws comes and rips the exterior wall off of his apartment and grabs his TV and tears it out. And he jumps up on the couch and he realizes the wrecking crew has has demolished the wrong building. 
And he's standing there going, hey, that's my TV. And they realize the mistake. And he goes back to Dustin Hoffman who goes, Harold, I'm sorry to say, you are not in control of the plot. (laughs) I want to say to you and I, you are not in control of the plot. As you look at Jesus before Herod and before Pilate and before the religious leaders, he's super calm as if he's in control or really his father is in control. Pilate is made to look like a chicken with his head cut off. He's going, in John's gospel, he goes in and out of his house multiple times. The Jews won't go inside because they don't want to defile themselves for it was considered unclean ceremonially for a Jew to enter a Gentile's house. And so they bring Jesus to his house, but they wait outside. So he, early in the morning, he goes out and he meets with them and they want him to be crucified. They want him to be condemned. And so he goes back in and talks to Jesus and asks him, Uh, questions. And then he goes back out and talks to them and back in, and he's totally out of control. But Jesus is secure. He's steady. He's, He's making Pilate marvel that he doesn't answer some of the questions. He just stands there. And as we consider the kingdom and the power and the glory, Jesus is asked, are you the king of the Jews? And I love how he responds. He says to Pilate, Do you ask this of your own accord or because someone else said it to you? You know, Jesus is going for the heart. He's going for the person. He's treating Pilate as a human and saying, are you asking because you want to know about me or are you just in political mode? Are you just trying to save your job or even your own head? Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the matter. He does it all the time in his questions. He does it for you and I. He wants to get to our hearts Pilate, are you asking me if I'm a king because others said it or because you actually want to know if I'm the Messiah, the king of the Jews? And sadly, Pilate dismisses the whole thing and says, am I a Jew? Your own people handed you over to me. And he plays the politician mode. He takes the Roman legal perspective instead of the bigger question. You see, Jesus is bringing God's kingdom, and he does answer it, but he kind of half answers it. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says it twice in that passage. My kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate says, so you are a king then. He comes to the answer that he wants, but he realizes he's not actually a threat. His kingdom is some otherworldly thing, and it's not really vying for Caesar's throne. So he declares him innocent. It's very interesting. You know, on Tenebrae service, Good Friday, we read through these, we call them shadows, the shadow of betrayal, the shadow of mockery. As I was listening on Good Friday, You know, Jesus is dressed up in a purple or a scarlet robe. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and they mock him as if he's an imposter king, and they strike him. And at one point in his suffering, they actually cover his his eyes, and then they hit him, and they say, if you're the Messiah, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? And I thought, you know, I'll bet he's praying for them by name, silently in his heart, because he knows who who it is. He doesn't have to see them physically. He knows all things. And then I thought, he doesn't deserve this. Why is he going through this? And then it occurred to me, you and I deserve it. You see, Adam and Eve were not happy to submit to God as their Lord and God and the one in control. They disobeyed and tried to take power. They'll have knowledge of good and evil, Satan tempted them with. And they took that, they took the the fruit. You know, if you or I had somebody blindfold us that we didn't know and strike us and say, prophesy, tell us who did it, we wouldn't be able to do it because we actually deserve that. But he didn't deserve it, and he took it for us out of love. He was willing to do that for us. He is a king, 
He is the king of the Jews and the king of the universe. And he was acknowledged as, as such, but by mockers. But then on the third day when he rose and that tomb was empty, they have to deal with the fact that the tomb couldn't hold him down. It is his kingdom. Jesus brings God's kingdom. But not only that, he bears God's power. You know, a little bit later in that examination, Pilate goes back out, he comes back in, and it says uh, in chapter 19, a little further, he asks him a question, where do you come from? And Jesus just simply won't even answer it. And Pilate says, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? And Jesus' response is this, you would have no power over me at all unless it had been granted to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, you don't actually have power. It's just temporary. God is giving you a little bit of power, but you're not really the powerful one. Jesus is standing there in the power of God and the power of self-control. He says, I could call down all the angels right now. All my servants would come and fight for me if I wanted to. I'm not doing it because I'm obeying my Father and I'm going to the cross for the sins of the world. Now, he doesn't come right out and say that, but that's what we know. That's what the rest of the scriptures teach us. And in John 18, it's interesting, when they, in verse 6, when they come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, they, Jesus sees them coming, and they've got torches, and it's dark, and they have clubs and swords, and it's a big, powerful group, and a whole battalion's coming. And he stands up to defend his disciples and says, who is it that you are seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And it's interesting when he answers, he says, ego e me in the Greek, which is an emphatic I, I am. And if you know, the name for God that he gave to Moses is I am. That's the name he's revealed, I am. So Jesus says, Who do you, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And it says they all fall down. Like bowling pins knocked down by the power of the majesty of this one that stands before them. He's powerful, this Jesus. In, in Philippians 3, uh, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul recognized the power that was working that raised Jesus from the dead. And the significance of his suffering. And he recognizes that to come after Jesus, we have to suffer. We have to put to death what is sinful and worldly in us, and we will experience the resurrection that Jesus did. One day, all in him will have new bodies and be in his presence, perfected, resurrected, just like Jesus was. He's the first fruits of what is to come. It's interesting, when he died on that cross, he was so powerful that there was an actual cosmic disturbance the one through whom the entire universe was created died, the author of life, and the sky grew dark, and there was a storm that came over, and an earthquake, and it broke open tombs, and dead people came back to life and walked around. That's what it says in the scriptures, and everybody was terrified. The mocking stopped for a while because they recognized the power hanging on that cross. Jesus has the power of God. Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of God and glory. He receives glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and it, it has this weightiness to it, uh, like a heaviness. In the Old Testament, when that temple was dedicated, the glory of God descended upon the priests, and it was so weighty, they were actually pressed to the ground by his glory. C.S. Lewis, the great Anglican mind and author of the 20th century, uh, has an essay called The Weight of Glory. 
And in there, he reflects on what glory is. And you and I know the word. We even maybe use it quite a bit. But how would you define glory? What exactly is it? And C.S. Lewis, he kind of fumbles around a little bit with, with possibilities, and he says it's got to mean two things, luminosity, which seems ridiculous, he says, and fame, which seems wicked, but actually it's what the scriptures show, the fame of God, where he is acknowledged for who he is and his power and his glory and his goodness and his majesty, all of that. You can receive fame from people, the glory of man, or you can receive it from from God, that he can acknowledge goodness. And in the weight of glory, he talks about the luminosity, the, the brightness. You know, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was transfigured, and he started to shine brightly. Moses was in God's presence, and his face started glowing. There's a luminosity to it, but there's also a recognition by others of greatness. And he says to Pilate, I have, I, for this reason I was born, for this reason I have come into the world, but Pilate doesn't notice this. He seems to miss it. It implies that Jesus existed forever and has entered into the world. And he says, I've done it to bear witness to the truth. He wants to give fame to God, to give glory to God, to glorify him by declaring what is true about God, his praiseworthy attributes. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And one of those attributes is love. God is love. And Jesus shows us how much God loves us, that while we were still his enemies and still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us that much. And there is no greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus did that for us. He laid down his life. And in Jesus' ministry, there are glimpses of glory. One of the sickest lines in the scripture is something that Pilate says. It's in Mark's gospel, Mark 15, 15. It says, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Think about whose glory we're talking about here, the glory of man or the glory of God. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released Barabbas, a robber, to them and handed Jesus over to be crucified. Pilate cared more about the glory of man than the glory of God. And he didn't care about the truth that Jesus was bearing witness to. Interesting, Jesus took the witness stand, but he was also the accused. He stood there, but he gave witness to God and God's glory. Now, I was talking to um, a friend who has an adult son recently, and this adult son keeps making bad decisions and seems to have calamity following him all the time, and he might even call it bad luck. And when his mother said, you know, you should pray about it, he like, gets in a huff and he turns his back and he walks out and he refuses to do it. It's not bad luck. It's, it's, a, it's a bad direction in life. He thinks he's in control and he's wrecking his life but he won't pray. He's not in control of the plot, but he wants to be. You know, on Easter morning, God demonstrated his absolute sovereignty. He who can resurrect the dead, as predicted, is more capable to run your life than you are. Think about that. So I ask you this morning, because the tomb is empty and he is alive and ruling, are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to surrender your fiefdom, your little part of the pie that you try to carve out and make your own little fiefdom, because we're thieves and robbers? Are you willing to surrender your fiefdom and come into his big kingdom? Are you willing to admit that you're actually powerless over sin and cry out to Jesus, who has the power to forgive you and heal you and transform your life? 
Are you willing to increase God's fame in the world by your testimony of what he has done? You know, somebody walked out of the 745 service and under the pavilion said, God has just done so much in my life over the years and was just giving glory to him, giving glory to him. Mean it when you pray. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this Sunday. I thank you for the empty tomb and for all that it means for us. Lord, we don't even know all that it means for us, but we come to worship you, and I pray that you'd give us the courage to hand over control because you alone are competent to rule our lives. Forgive us for trying to hang on to control. Lord, we give our lives to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.